have just stumbled across episode 469 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show and welcome to the band Us Papa Hayoles for allowing us to play their music on this week's episode. This song is called Behind You and it is from their self-titled release, which you can find over at Bandcamp by looking up the band Us Papa Hayoles. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes so follow that go check out their album when you're done listening to this episode we've got a lot to talk about this time around because we are finally dusting off a recording that i've had sitting in the virtual hopper for way too long steve turek is back on the show and we're going to be talking about the tv movie gargoyles from 1970 something or other 72 yeah it's 1972 so we're going to be talking about that. Plus, of course, we've got Kenny with his look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. It's a special one, and uh, well, you're just going to have to sit tight and listen to find out why. We have a touch of listener feedback, and actually, I got an email that I want to address right now. And I've talked about this on previous episodes of the show, and I'm going to keep doing this as long as I can, as long as is needed, because really... We're still dealing with the corona apocalypse, and I know some parts of the country and some parts of the world are starting to open back up, but it's taken a pretty big toll on a lot of businesses that we monster kids, geeks, nerds, and whatever else you want to call us enjoy. Movie fans have had to watch their movie theaters stay closed for who knows how long, and, and occasionally, you know, you might be able to pick up a bag of popcorn or two, like I've been doing over at the Joy Cinema here in Tigard, Oregon. But sometimes these theaters just have nothing to give right now because they've had to shut down completely. And I got an email from a listener here, and I'd like to read it to you right now. Hi, Derek. I am not affiliated with this small business, but I would love it if they got a bump, slash promo, slash link, slash etc. from you. I did a little blurb you can use or not. It's up to you. And now it's occurring to me that maybe I didn't need to read that first part. Anyway, here's the blurb that they wrote. Shout out to the Holiday Twin Drive-In showing movies in Fort Collins, Colorado for 50 years. Built in the 1960s and family owned and run by the Webb family since 1979, the Holiday Twin provides a great movie-going experience. Whether you want to support local or just want to look cool, they have apparel for sale over at holidaytwin.com merch featuring their groovy retro logos. You can also check them out on Facebook and Instagram. Lighting up the front range for 50 years, that's the Holiday Twin. That email came in from patron of the show, Christiane, and I appreciate you writing in. In fact, I've been to that drive-in years ago. It must have been at least 25 years ago or so. I graduated high school in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and one of the coolest things to do in Cheyenne was to go to Fort Collins, Colorado, because it was Cheyenne, and, you know, anyway. I had gone to that drive-in theater with uh, my girlfriend at the time, and it was a lot of fun. Uh, it was really cool. You know, I hadn't been to a drive-in in years at that point, so that was probably the first drive-in experience that I'd had. Well, wow. I don't know how long it was between the last time I went to a drive-in and then that theater there. Hmm. Anyway, I'm glad the theater is still there and we want to help them stay there. So check out HolidayTwin.com slash merch. I am looking at the shirt here. It looks really cool. You can pick up a shirt or a hoodie. Check them out. Let them know that you heard about them here on Monster Kid Radio. Christian, thank you so much for letting us know about this opportunity to support a drive-in movie theater. Drive-in. Drive-ins are so cool. That's awesome. 
Thank you. If you want to write in about any small business, if it's your own or one that you would like to see get a little bit of a pop here on Monster Kid Radio, please drop me a line at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or call in and leave us a voicemail at 503-810. Whoa, that's not, <laughs> this is about to give you my personal phone number. 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. All right, we got some listener feedback to get to, so why don't we hit that? Hit up Kenny, hit up Steve, hit up the Gargoyles. It's all coming right after this. A remote Pacific island where an expedition of world-famous scientists investigate incredible rumors of its fantastic mysteries and discover barren volcanic mountains surrounding strange green valleys. Mammoth caves that breed giant mutations. Vampire plants that devour humans. But most astounding of all, the tiniest women in all creation. Sacred beauties of a lost tribe which worships a monstrous creature. the secret of Mothra? What is the bizarre spell that awakens Mothra as these doll-sized girls call to the super god from captivity? Mothra, whose revenge is more devastating than any man-made weapon. Mothra, who defies warplanes. ocean liners, smashes dams and bridges, Mothra creating hurricanes, Mothra enveloped in a shell that no human force can penetrate. Mothra, indestructible, all-powerful, indescribable. What kind of creature is this god monster, Mothra? Mary, no! God, let's let go! It's the police! Throw down your weapons and surrender! Of course. The sound is coming from the basement. It's all right. I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? <laughs> Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, get away. no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast 12 Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. Famous Monsters of Hollywood magazine names it Shock Award winner The Monster of Piedras Blancas The Monster of Piedras Blancas The world's most shocking monster Stalks its unsuspecting prey 
feasts its eyes on the next victim to writhe in its slimy arms. The screen's most nightmarish beast. You're in the feedback section of the show, and we just got this email in as of this recording 59 minutes ago, so it's hot off the e-press. It comes from listener of the show, Jack B. Jack says, oh yeah, I saw War of the Planets. I remember those Happy New Year people. I remember bright colors and flashing lights, but the plot details kind of slip away. But there are the rocket ships, every one of which is different, which is so cool. This is in reference to the last episode I did with Rod Barnett, where we talked about the movie War of the Planets. Jack continues, here's where I found something exciting, but it'd be embarrassing if everyone already knows it. So edit this out if you heard it before. <laughs> you know, I probably ought to read these things ahead of time. Anyway, he continues, the Federico Fellini film, Eight and a Half, is about a director making a science fiction film. He'd had a different idea for his Eighth and a Half film. He co-directed one, so he stuck with the fraction, but he didn't write it down and forgot it. But that gave him the idea of a director who forgot what he was doing in the middle of a picture. Deep into the movie, there's a scene on a beach. He's going to shoot some scenes there, and he's holding a press conference. There's a table set up displaying spaceship miniatures like jewelry. The Antonio Margariti collection. From the date, these had been used in Assignment Outer Space and Battle of the Worlds, but not yet in the Gamma 1 films. There's some shenanigans on the beach in the movie, but they had enough respect not to break the models. So, I didn't know this. I've never seen Eight and a Half. I had no idea that these models appeared in this film, but now I think I need to see this movie at some point. I'll add it to the two watch list. Jack's email continues. I don't want to comment on every episode, maybe later, but I did want to go back to just before last year's Lucha de Mayo. My, I did it again. Lucha de Mayo to the movie Voyage to the Prehistoric Planet of Prehistoric Women. I'm a big robot fan. That is a big fan of all robots, great and small. So you can guess the end of the third version of this movie is very appealing, but it just doesn't work well with the original ending, which was great. I'm glad I saw the early Americanization first. Stephen D. Sullivan said that he didn't remember a good screen robot between Ivan from that film and Robbie the Robot, but that someone would write in to prove him wrong. I hope it is only taken in a spirit of enthusiasm when I point to the first spaceship on Venus and its robot Omega, or as they pronounce it in the English dub, Omega. <laughs> Not to be confused with the Amiga personal computer of the late 80s. Not as many moving parts as the other two, but gets a lot of points for looking like a man in a tin suit. In fact, when it plays chess in the crew compartment, only its head is invited. <laughs> There's enough of a blob-like monster for me to hope it'll be covered on MKR, but not enough to make me ask, what you waiting for, Derek? Jack. That is incredibly cool. Thank you for writing in and giving us that heads up. I've never seen the first spaceship on Venus, but it has been on my list as a potential MKR movie. And it sounds like I need to bump it further up the list. Jack, thank you so much for letting me know about that. And thanks for writing in. I really appreciate it. If you want to write in and be cool like Jack, you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or you can call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. Are you ready? Are you, Are ready, you ready to descend? To descend, to descend with Pat Boone, James Mason, Arlene Dahl, and Gertrude the Duck. <laughs> 
where nothing is like anything you have ever seen. Come along on the most fantastic adventure Jules Verne ever created. Journey to the center of the Earth. A world-famous scientist, greatest living master of the occult, has mysteriously vanished. In his place, a huge and fearsome prehistoric monster suddenly appears. What happened to Dr. Waterman? Only one man, last to see him alive, knows. And now he finds himself in deadly peril. The weird, the unbelievable, the supernatural come alive before your very eyes in Equinox. The invisible barrier between good and evil, between light and the forces of darkness. What is the secret of the thousand-year-old book? See four teenage boys and girls fight a devil cult for their lives, their sanity, their eternal souls in Equinox. In supernatural color, Hello, everyone. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts for NASHICAST, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashi. We, for over five years, have brought you the joys of Spanish cinema, filtered through our brains to you. Yes. Now, what is it that qualifies two Southern boys to talk about films that came out of Spain, and I can't think of a single thing. There's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. nothing. Except that we just love, love them, love them, love them. We love them. Nashi Cast yeah. covers the films of Paul Nashi and any other Spanish horror film that we can pretend we know something about. <laughs> yes. If you love beautiful women wearing incredibly short miniskirts in subarctic temperatures, <laughs> chased by werewolves in leisure suits. If you love werewolves, vampires, unidentifiable beasts, or crazy people driving women around and talking like a maniac. <laughs> yes, flying cats, beheadings with axes. <laughs> Blood that looks like Sham- melted crayons. Shambling zombies, yeah. Some of the films that we've covered in the past are Mark of the Werewolf. Howl of the Devil. Vengeance of the Zombies. Or Arises from the Tomb. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Vampire's Night Orgy. Ooh, Yes. Join us on this journey through the golden age of Spanish horror where Paul Nashi, Leon Klamowski, Jess Franco, Amando Diasorio take us through a filter Espanol. Join us for the Nashi cast. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This week, we are going to continue our issue-by-issue examination of films covered with article-length features and famous monsters. We are up to issue 19 from September of 1962. Unlike the last three issues we covered, this issue is loaded with articles about specific movies. In the middle of a lengthy coming attraction article that opens the issue is a three-page picture spread for Mothra with nine pictures. This brief description acted as an extended caption for the photos. The story of Mothra takes place in the near future in a never-never land called Rosilica. A joint expedition of Japanese Rosilican scientists lands on Infant Island, a kind of latter-day bikini atoll, to discover that it still supports a strange form of dwarf life despite a heavy residue of radioactivity from H-bomb test blasts. The inhabitants are tiny humans only two feet tall who worship a veritable winged behemoth. When two of the little women, called Aelinas, are kidnapped by unscrupulous promoters and exhibited in nightclubs like Sideshow Freaks, 
The sacred egg that the girls once guarded hatches an insect larva of incredible proportions, which destroys ships as it swims through the sea in search of land and its lost Aelinus. As the spectacle reaches its climax, Mothra undergoes a metamorphosis from slumbering giant in a colossal cocoon to menacing moth of monstrous size. Tokyo and Rosilica tremble to the beat of its tornadic wings as the enraged creature follows the telepathic cries for help from its helpless handmaidens. The airborne monstrosity destroys all in its path. Bridges, skyscrapers, dams, defying all military weapons, including an atomic heat cannon, till it rescues the Aelinus and returns with them to their infant island. The next film covered in this issue was the Roger Corman Poe classic, Tales of Terror, which Derek covered with Dr. Gangrene in episode 382 of Monster Kid Radio. It was a six-page article with nine photos, including the gruesome decomposition of Vincent Price, whose melting face creeped me out since I was a kid. After that, we have a look at The Lost World. Editor Forrest J. Ackerman shares his memories of the silent classic and had this to say about the newer version from 1960. If all you have ever seen is The Lost World of 1960, I pity you. Possibly you liked it. It had color, it had sound, it had lizards, gila monsters, armadillos, newts, salamanders, chameleons. To my mind, they will never be more than the lazy man's dinosaurs. The best, most convincing use of them, I thought, was in Journey to the Center of the Earth. But for prehistoric thrills, I'll take the poorest stop-motion model any day over the liveliest living lizards faked up and blown up to look dino-sized. The remake of The Lost World was one of the world's greatest disappointments to me because the end flashed on the screen just when the original version started moving toward its climax. Let me explain it to you like this. Could you imagine King Kong quitting right after they'd overcome him with gas on Skull Island? and were about to transport him back to civilization? At first, I forgave them when I heard they were going to make a sequel to the new Lost World and that Professor Challenger, Claude Rains, would have his hands full when his dinosaur egg hatched in a modern metropolis. But two years later, I have seen no sign of the follow-up film and am feeling dismally cheated. This article ends with a filmography of dinosaur movies. The last film covered is an interesting one, the first do-it-yourself amateur movie to be featured in FM. The Monster in the Basement is the title of an amateur home movie that was recently written, produced, and directed by Robert Krauss. Mr. Krauss is the famous New Yorker magazine cartoonist and, he confesses, constant reader of Famous Monsters magazine. Bob had always been a horror movie fan and was anxious to try his creative hand at writing and directing a production of his own. The film itself was made with the help of two friends who served as cameramen, plus a total budget of $90. The production was shot with 16mm black and white film and runs 8 minutes. Many unusual effects were obtained by splicing odd bits of film together. There are no titles and no dialogue. The only sound is eerie music. Ordinary monster masks and an old wig were used, and tricky lighting made this makeup quite effective. A total of 900 feet of film was exposed to shoot the movie, which was shot in 12 hours, mostly in the basement. The editing took two weeks. Right now, Bob is looking to release his miniature monster movie to theaters throughout the country. And if it proves successful, we might start a whole new trend in filmmaking through young monster fans.
The rest of the article was a look at the film with pictures done with an artistic layout. It covers 10 pages and includes 18 photos. I looked for the film on the internet with no luck, but did find a lot of information on Mr. Krause. He was 42 when he made this film, and besides being a cartoonist for The New Yorker, he also wrote and illustrated many children's books, including his most famous, Leo the Late Bloomer. That is all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next time. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. I am so glad Kenny talked about the do-it-yourself movie that was covered in that issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland. If you go back through past issues of Famous Monsters, and I think sometimes they turned up in Castle of Frankenstein magazine as well. If you go back and look, you'll find that there is the occasional article about a reader of that magazine making an amateur monster movie. I don't know where these movies are. I don't know if they still exist anywhere. I don't know who has them. I don't know what the right situation is, but I tell you, I would love to go through these magazines and try to find out what happened to these films. Now, I looked up Robert Krauss, and that's spelled K-R-A-U-S. And yeah, like Kenny said, he did a lot more than just make that monster movie. But if we can track down the monster in the basement from 1962, how amazing would that be? Now, I also did some searching online, and I came up pretty empty-handed. But this movie did get referenced in at least one other one of these Encyclopedia of Fantasy and Science Fiction film type books. So it did get some press in more than just famous monsters. It may be out there somewhere. Robert Krauss, unfortunately, is no longer with us. He did have two children. I don't know what their status is, but if anybody has any leads on this movie, The Monster in the Basement, I know I'd love to see it, and I'd love to help make sure that it gets seen by as many monster kids as possible. So as Kenny continues his journey through famous monsters, anytime he comes up with a do-it-yourself monster article, I'm going to ask him to mention it here on the show, and then we can start looking for it. Thanks again, Kenny. Really appreciate everything that you do. Hello, Christopher. What insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? People are always telling me that's illegal. Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, Rescue from Gilligan's Island. Well, let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. Oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. <laughs> that sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show. Oh, will do. Let's see, that's at orphanentertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie someday? Mm-hmm, we'll see, Christopher. We'll see. What is it? I don't know. Ejected from unexplored secret stratus. 
this giant harder-than-steel piston disgorges strange creatures, inundating our world, twisting the emotions of women, distorting our men. This is a piece we got off the mare. Reflex action like a snake. Cut a snake in half and the two pieces go off in different directions. These things take over a man's mind? He becomes a... A robot? A machine taking orders? Join the hunt for the hiding place of terror. Find the breeding place of these globs of destruction. It's an adventure that'll burst your blood vessels with suspense. See the brain eaters. Coming back to MKR soon, Dr. Tongue's vintage world of monster collectibles. We'll sell you the whole seat, but you're only gonna need the edge. Before we get into this recording with me and Steve, Turek that is, I want to give you guys and gals a heads up. This recording actually took place last October, and it's been sitting on my hard drive ever since. What that means for you is that I make some references to the quote-unquote just-happened Lovecraft Film Festival. We talk about the upcoming movie Godzilla King of the Monsters. Just consider it like a time capsule, a look back before we had to deal with all this apocalypse and quarantine and stay-at-home orders and all that other stuff. Heck, we even talk about the rallies that had just happened, so keep that in mind. With that said, I hope you enjoy. Count, take it away. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Monster Kid Radio listeners, I didn't want to have this guy on the show. I mean, he and I clearly belong to different political parties. We have opposing political views. But I was kind of committed, so I'm going to fulfill my contractual obligation and have Steve Turek back on the show. How are you doing, man? I'm doing really well. I mean, after the rally award results, I mean, we've just been living high at the Turek household. Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> so, uh, for listeners who don't know, uh, no, I don't talk politics on Monster Kid Radio. We're just talking about how Steve somehow managed to get his boy, Godzilla, to win not once but twice against my boy, the creature from the Black Lagoon, in this past year's Rally Awards. Clearly, he did something to cheat. Clearly. I didn't do anything to cheat, but I will say that means Godzilla 2, Creature 1, because Creature did have the one win over it in the uh, Top 100 Monster Movies poll. So, mm-hmm. it's, so it's not it's not like it's the, the creature is being shut out. Uh huh. But but let me ask you, Derek, how, how's your support group going with for the creature? You know, the, the supporters of the creature. Do you guys meet every week or every month? Uh-huh. So we're going to talk about the movie Gargoyles this week. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so this episode won't be coming out until November uh, sometime. But uh, I, I hope at some point this Halloween season, Steve, you do watch or you do pay the proper respect to the Gill Man and you do watch one of the creature films at some point. Just, you know, out of courtesy to, well, me. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy the creature films. For me, man-sized monster-wise costumes, it's the best one. Practical effects and everything, it's still, I feel, one of the best costumes ever. And Mm -hmm. one of the best movies. There's so few of them that you can easily watch them on one day. I mean, there's only three. I mean, a a true movie marathon would be if you went through all the Godzilla films, which are too numerous to count. Thinking quality-wise, so quality-wise, you've got three quality creature films. Of all the Godzilla movies, can you honestly tell me with a straight face that they're all superior films, that they're all high quality? Oh, oh, oh God, no. But see, I think that's why us Godzilla fans are a little more resilient than the creature fans. When Godzilla lost in the um, monster movie poll, we didn't have to have a support group or whatever because we've seen some... Godzilla films, <coughs> 1998, <coughs> Godzilla <laughs> movie. Oh, God, it's just hard even saying it. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> there, there's been some god-awful Godzilla films. Um, but but recently, Shin Godzilla, baby, it's been like, all oh, real good. Some weird anime stuff coming out by Toho, which uh, I've watched those two movies, and that, that's it's, it's, it's very bizarre. I don't know if you've seen them or not, but it's just those two are weird. <laughs> you know, I I have a difficult time with kaiju media that is not live action. And I, I know Shin Godzilla's got a lot of CGI. I mean, I, I know a lot of his computer graphics and that sort of thing, as well as the legendary movies. I, I get that. But there's just something about the scale and scope of seeing something in quote-unquote real life versus having it translated as an animated thing or a comic book or anything like that. There's just something that strikes me better, I guess, when it comes to a live action presentation. I don't know if that makes much sense because I, I do like kaiju media, uh, some comic books and, and some novels and things like that. Don't get me wrong. I think it's, it's a lot of what I've read and seen is great, but you know, there's just something about having it interact with something real that makes it feel more real to me. Whereas you know, reading it like Timothy Price's books. Awesome. Anthony Wendell's handbook. Great. But there's just something about like an an animated version of it that just doesn't call to me. And maybe that's because I feel like it isn't any harder to draw Godzilla than it is to draw the people he's stepping on. Whereas with a live action film, there's a lot more work to make Godzilla do something versus throwing some people into a set. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Oh, it makes sense, and, and and I agree with you, of course. I grew up, and Godzilla was that cartoon series. Okay, you know what? I'm going to stop you right here, because this whole time I'm trying to get Steve to say something along the lines of, I agree with you, of course, because now I can take that sound clip, and I can say anything I want about Creature from the Black Lagoon being the better film, and play him saying, well, I agree with you, of course, so perfect. I'm done. I'm out. It was all a trap. I should have known. <laughs> No, no, go ahead. You, you were saying you had the cartoon? You'd think with a cartoon or animated series, you can do anything. It's just like a comic book. You, you can just draw your imagination. Because right, there's no budget. There's no budget. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, because you've got to draw the page anyway. So it's, it's what does it matter how many creatures you have? You can just uh, go crazy. And yet, 
I agree with you. The live action versions of the practical effects still hold better than the animated stuff. And I think as time goes by, CGI, like we look at CGI 20 years ago and you look at it now, Mm -hmm. you're like, oh, that's so old. It's so fake. Where if you look at the creature, the Black Lagoon suit from 1954 and you look at it today, it still holds up. You look at the Godzilla's suits that are really done well and those monster suits they're really done well they hold up i agree with you now that's not to say that somebody who draws godzilla is not doing godzilla's work i mean i've seen some amazing artwork and some amazing illustrations and depictions of our favorite kaijus but in terms of film you know i really want to see him interact with something real even if it is a cgi fest which shin godzilla is a lot of cgi but i still really enjoy that film despite the fact that they're is a lot of quote unquote animated Godzilla. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I don't know. It's just a fickle thing with me, I guess. Well, I enjoyed the legendary Godzilla movie, you know, that came out a couple of years ago. And of course they're coming out the next um, Godzilla King of the Monsters, I believe next year. Mm-hmm. And yeah. Um, and yeah, it's CGI. But when I saw that trailer and I saw Rodan looking like Rodan should, it was like, Oh, <laughs> and, and also, and, and Mothra just—it was magical with the wings, the part of the trailer. Right. It's just—it's just when you see those parts, bring it does bring a, a monster man's tear to his eye. You know, it's just just oh, this is so beautiful. I am excited to see it, just because you know it'll be great to see Rodan and Mothra and Ghidra on the big screen in a new incarnation again. Even though I know full well it's all CG, but still, I, I'm looking forward to it. And I didn't have the problem with the legendary Godzilla that a lot of people did. For me, yeah, the human characters probably weren't as strong as they could have been, but I still enjoyed it. I like Shin Godzilla a lot more, though. Well, I agree with you on that. I'd like Shin Godzilla better, too. But all those movies that we really love that have Godzilla in them have one major thing, in my opinion, in common is the human story is told really well, or is at least engaging. Yeah, that's the key, right? That's always been the key with most most of these monster movies that can lend themselves to telling stories outside of just being a monster movie. The, the key is having a solid human story, a story about humanity doing something. Uh, back when I used to do the zombie podcast, that was my thing. You know, the, the best zombie movies were not about the zombies. They were about the people dealing with the zombie menace. And I feel like the best kaiju films, once you get past the spectacle of it, really are about the people living in this kaiju-verse dealing with the situation or whatever their stories are. That's one of the things that I like about the Heisei series of the Godzilla movies is that there are stories happening with the people from film to film to film that I can really connect with. And I think that's cool. Exactly. I don't know if this is going to be controversial or not, but I, I mean, a lot of people with the legendaries Godzilla were upset because Godzilla didn't have enough screen time for them. But if you look back, a lot of those old Godzilla movies that we just talked about, Godzilla's not in it like a, yeah. a, a tremendous amount, you know, and usually the more you get Godzilla, the less people like it because I think if you lose that, because how, how, how can we relate to Godzilla? How can you relate to the creature from the Black Lagoon? It's, it's a non-human entity. So it's hard for us to understand, especially when we don't know what they're thinking. Though on occasion, Godzilla has talked, but we usually don't know what they're thinking and doing. With the human characters, we can, we can understand and obviously get engaged and um, connect with them. And I, think, and I think that's what the movie is. And I'm hoping that with... Um, 
this next one out that they um, really get the human story down because with the legendary Godzilla, the biggest shame was the character we cared the most about they killed off. Right. And, and part of it was the writing of the character and part of it was the performance. I mean, if we're being totally honest and totally fair here, the performances, the, the acting chops of the two uh, lead human characters that we were following around, probably not the strongest they've ever done. And, there's just something off about the chemistry between the two. I don't know what it was. And that's one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to the next one as well, is that the girl, um, I forget, I'm spacing on her name, but oh, she's Millie, 11 from Millie Bobby Brown. Yes. And I know she's capable of some incredible acting. So I'm really looking forward to that. That and I mean, she cut her teeth. Well, maybe not cut her teeth, but she came mainstream thanks to stranger things which had a lot of visual effects work which means as a young actress she's got a lot of experience dealing with that already and i feel like when you've got some older actors and actresses coming into a movie that's filled with a lot of visual effects maybe they're not used to working on a movie like that you know what i mean go back and watch um I was just talking about this movie with uh, Dominique Lamsey's The Haunting, uh, the remake with Liam Neeson. Go back and watch that film and watch him try to interact with the visual effects or CG elements in that movie. This is right around the time Phantom Menace came out, so you'd think that he would know how to interact with something that's not there, but he looks lost in that movie dealing with these imaginary elements, whereas it's somebody who started working in Hollywood and acting in the era of visual effects may be able to do it better. I don't know. I'm kind of rambling here at this point and maybe losing my thread. Well, no, I agree with you because if you look back at the, um, what was the seventh voyage of Sinbad, he was excellent acting against nothing that was there. You know, you're, you're talking mm-hmm. in the 1950s. Uh, some, some actors are able to do that. They're able to engage that imagination and play off what can never be seen and, and a practical effect of that size and scope. But other actors, just can't do that as well. It's, it's nothing negative against them. It's just sometimes it's, it's a different skill set. It is. It's a different skill set. It's a different set of experiences that led them to that point. So that's one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to King of the Monsters because I know she knows how to do that <laughs> and interact with these imaginary things. And she's a solid actress too on top of that. Everything that I've seen her in, and I've not seen her in much, but outside of Stranger Things, I've seen her do a few other things and, and she's great. So I'm looking forward to it. Let's put it this way. But we both can agree that we like amphibian-type monsters. Sure. Green monsters that have something to do with water. I'm on board. Sure. Exactly. You know, so what we got to do next is humanoids of the deep. No, no, we don't have to do nothing. <laughs> we don't got to do that. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. I mean, it's bad enough that you got me doing a movie from the 70s this week, Steve. Come on. Well, at least it's the early 70s. My show, my rules. I wanted to do this one anyway. Uh, now that we've talked a lot about Godzilla, why don't we switch gears and talk about something else that starts with the letter G? But first, we have to do something that we do every week here on the show, and you know what it is. What could that be, Derek? The Classic Five! For people who don't know, for new listeners, uh, The Classic Five is a game that we play here on Monster Kid Radio. I've got a deck of cards here. Each one of these cards has a this or that, yes or no style question about classic monster movies. Most of these questions were written by me, although a few people have contributed questions over the years. There are questions about classic monster movies, universal films, hammer films, and so on. Some people call it a game, like we just did. Some people call it a conversation starter. We call it the classic five. Steve, are you ready to play? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Here we go. Card number one right off the top. 
which is your favorite Bert I. Gordon film, The Amazing Colossal Man or War of the Colossal Beast? Amazing Colossal Man. <laughs> Please, we're doing all we can for you. We're trying to bring you back down to normal size. You do think I'm a freak, don't you? But you know, to me, you're the freak, the one who's different. I'm not growing, you're shrinking. <laughs> he started as a normal human being, but now each day he doubles in size. Where will it stop? The amazing colossal man. Colonel, he's been reported in Las Vegas. Impossible. How can he walk 120 miles in only an hour? Impossible. Not when you're 60 feet tall. The amazing colossal man. It sets up the whole mythos of that reality or that universe. And I always love the scene where he throws the needle and he throws it through the one soldier like a dog. Ever since I was a young boy, when I saw that, it's just, it's just, it's just, you know, I think it actually gave me nightmares when I was really that classic scene that sets the tone for the movie. And also going through all those changes and how people are reacting to him and trying to help him out. And, and he can, he was able to talk early on so you could hear what he was going through. So I think I like that part a lot better because you can, you can feel more sympathy for his character than, with the second one, if you were to see it, you don't have as much sympathy for him. Question number two, and this is actually from the new deck that I'm developing right now, the new core deck. Which do you prefer, the Twilight Zone or Night Gallery? Ooh, I have to go with the Twilight Zone. Watching those old episodes and had so many classic episodes that everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people know. I mean, a lot of people, even if they've never seen the episode with William Shatner's character on the plane, pointing at the wing. Everybody always knows that he sees some kind of creature on the wing. Uh, you know, to, to serve man. I mean, there's so many different ones. The Monsters on Mulberry Street, yeah, that, that's just one of the yeah. best episodes ever. And it's at the writing, the acting, and you're getting a lot of actors that are either in their prime, just past their movie prime, but still bringing it, or just before they became big stars something that will never happen again because they've tried to redo it and it just never takes off. It was just that five or six year period that it was able to just be a bright shining light. And Night Gallery is one where Rod Serling tried to do it again and it just didn't hit with the population. Though those episodes are also strong, there's just nowhere near as many. So they've relaunched Twilight Zone twice once in the 80s and i believe it was in the 90s with forrest whitaker posting it and they are about to do it again with jordan peele this time around so we'll see how that turns out night gallery man this could turn into a night gallery episode because i love me some night gallery but you're right it didn't have the same connection and i think part of that was studio mandate that he wasn't allowed to do everything he wanted to do whereas with twilight zone he had a lot more freedom all right like i said no wrong answers man all right here we go <laughs> card number three fritz or igor Igor, especially if, if Bella Lugosi's playing him, you know, yeah, the evil he was able to bring into that role and the menace. I just enjoy that role of his. Right on. Card number four. This is from the Deep Cut expansion deck, which I'm going to be making available here soon. I hope. Which movie do you prefer, The Body Snatcher or Invasion of the Body Snatchers? Ooh, that is it. That, oh man. So I take the Invasion of the Body Snatchers. We're talking about the one in the 50s. Yeah, I do have it listed as the one directed by Don Siegel. So, yeah, the 50s. Oh, oh man. Ooh, man. 
This is tough. Oh, you, you are cruel. I'm going to go with um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers simply because I've seen it a lot of times. They come from another world, spawned in the light years of space, unleashed to take over the bodies and souls of the people of our planet, bringing a new dimension in terror to the giant super scope screen. From city to city, an incredible hysterical panic spreads. As the unimaginable becomes real, the impossible becomes true. Stop and listen! Stop and listen to me! Listen! Listen! Listen to me! They're not human! Can't you see? Everyone! They're here already! You're next! I saw it growing up, and it always stuck with me with those scenes. And I also seen the, the one in the 70s with Donald Sutherland. The two of them, to me, blend together a little bit. Uh, okay. But I just enjoy both of them so much. I just enjoy the whole premise of how it's a secret, this quiet takeover of society, and nobody really notices it. The Body Snatcher, believe it or not, I did not see for the first time until just a few weeks ago. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, what did you think of it? I really enjoyed it. I was getting from – I, I have a Netflix account, which we I, I still get the discs. Yes, I'm old school. And um, I, was, <laughs> I was going through the Val Luden collection, and of course, I had the Body Snatcher. I got to see the Leopard Man, uh, Ghost Ship. I mean, I was just watching those. It's just like, oh, these are so great. But the Body Snatcher is definitely a great. I enjoyed that movie a lot. And um, I think maybe my answer might be, we've said many times before, our answers are subject to change at any time. Oh, sure. If we play this tomorrow, your answers will be totally different. Heck, if we play it in half an hour, your answers will be different. <laughs> That's how it would be for me, so I totally get it, man. All right, card number five, the final card. This comes from the Hammer Expansion deck. Which Hammer film could use just one more sequel? Oh, that's an easy one. Kronos. After <laughs> Kronos, Vampire. Yeah! yeah. It, it doesn't just deserve a sequel. It deserves sequels. Prequels. It needs a whole franchise, man. <laughs> sequels, prequels, a TV series, comic books, a lunchbox, the whole bit. <laughs> well, it does have comic books. So it's. Uh, That's it, true. It, it, That's it, true. That's true. It, it did a limited series recently. But yeah, Captain Kronos, I mean, the whole premise that it's set up, and you and I have talked about how we've always loved vampire hunters. And he could easily switch into not just a vampire hunter, but a monster hunter set in the gothic age and, you, and he's traveling all through europe so you can just roll with this and with his um gorst the the hunchback helper i'm trying to remember but you know the, the one with, going with him he was the two of them their chemistry was so great and of course all these movie sequels would have to have the lovely caroline monroe <laughs> yes he didn't take her at the end of the one movie but hey you could easily Forget about that part, and she was there with him. Or maybe she just happens to be in the town yet again. Gotcha. Right on. Well, there we go. That's the classic five, Steve. I know they said there's no right or wrong answers, but I think you got them all right. So you win, and your prize is that you get to be on Monster Kid Radio this week. I tell you, it's, it's a treasure. The classic five! So I said earlier we're talking about another G monster. We're talking about gargoyles in the TV film gargoyles which came out what 1972 1972 Seven. 19 pi 1972 okay got it 1972 right. 
1972 TV movie Emmy award-winning film for uh, Stan Winston's amazing creature design and makeup effects and makeup work. This was something I had never seen before. So this was a first time watch for me and I watched it right before we started recording. So it's super fresh in my brain. I first saw this movie back in 72 Uh, My older brothers were watching it, and I remember sneaking down into the basement. And, you know, they always talk about in Doctor Who, how the young kid would always watch the movie from behind the couch. And I literally was watching this movie from behind the couch. So anytime the gargoyles came out, I'd be like, oh, I can't really look, but I got to look. I can't really look. Oh, I got to look. Oh, it was was great. And then I think it aired again either the next year or the year after at late night. And I remember doing the same thing again, sneaking downstairs and – this time they said, oh, why don't you, you don't have to stay behind the couch. You can lay on the couch and just enjoying those gargoyle scenes. And, of course, being a six-year-old, a lot of the stuff that's in the middle when there's no real action going on, it was a little hard you know, for my six-year-old body to stay awake. But then I'd wake up right in the middle of a gargoyle attack, and it was just like, whoa. You know, for me, um, like I said, I just watched it, and I didn't watch it alone. And what I mean by that is uh, Sven Gulli hosted it earlier this year. And that's how I watched it, is I, I've been sitting on this recording of Sven Gulli hosting Gargoyle. So I got to watch it with a horror host this morning, man. Well, aren't you special, I tell you. Not everybody that, gets to yeah. do that. <laughs> uh, and it was a lot of fun. I, I really enjoyed checking it out. And, you know, I'll talk a little bit more about it as we go along. But this is the 1970s when I feel like some really interesting and exciting things were happening in terms of TV movies. There, there's a lot of really cool TV stuff happening around that time. You don't really see a lot of TV movies happening now. You know, if they are, they're going to something like HBO or some other channel or, or network like Hulu or something like that. But Back in the 70s and in the 80s, and maybe a teeny tiny bit into the 90s, you saw television movies as prestige productions. Exactly. That's fascinating to me. Well, I mean, you had, what, The Night Strangler and The Night Stalker? Oh, yeah. I was Dan Curtis's Playground was the television movie. Come on. And then, of course, you had his, uh, Frankenstein, Jack Palance, Dracula, um, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. I mean, Dan Curtis was everywhere. Dark Shadows. You know, I mean, it's just... Right. I mean, he was the monster man on TV. Amazingly enough, he had nothing to do with this movie. But in that time, well, that's true. In time frame, with him doing what he did, it probably led for this movie to be made. When you think about genre television now, horror genre television today, do you find it on the major networks? I I don't think you do. I mean, there might be a one-off here or there, but for the most part, this is stuff that's relegated to something that isn't abbreviated by three initials. You know, it's not ABC, CBS, or NBC, or even Fox. You're going to find most of the genre horror television on the upper channels or on one of the streaming services like Netflix or Hulu, that sort of thing. I mean, you might have something like American Horror Story, but again, that's on FX. That's not on your standard network. So I'm, I'm loving that as I dig into the 60s and 70s on television, there were vampires on primetime network TV. There were monsters, flat out monsters on primetime television. And it was a thing. And people apparently loved it because they kept doing it. And wow, what a magical time. And like I said, I was lucky enough because my eldest brother's eight years older than I am. My middle brother's four years older. And it was mostly my eldest brother who liked watching these films, Rick. So because of him, 
I was able to watch these. Where if I think if I would have been an only child, my parents never would have let me watch them. So thankfully, thank you, Rick, being the eldest brother and <laughs> showing me this influence of monster movies. Because without you, I wouldn't have saw Gargoyles twice. There you go. <laughs> Man, it's a great little film. And it really speaks to me on a couple of different levels because I've always enjoyed the stories in which there might be a reluctant monster fighter or monster hunter type or, or like a scientist type who discovers something supernatural or monstrous and they have to be the ones who stop it. I mean, I've always enjoyed that, whether it's John Agar in Tarantula or Richard Denning in The Black Scorpion, something along those lines. And you kind of have that here. You've got this anthropologist guy going around collecting folklore and these stories, and he's writing books about this stuff. He's got a very scientific approach to a lot of this, and he stumbles into something that is clearly monstrous and, and even supernatural to a point. It's not full on like vampire supernatural, but I mean, they're freaking gargoyles, man. And they're like, no gargoyle I have ever seen. Uh, normally, gargoyles for me are these stone-like creations. These things are flesh and blood and bone. And I liked how they tied it in. And they did this at the very beginning of the film with the, the voiceover. Just showing images of the gargoyle statues that you're bringing up. How gargoyles have been around since the beginning. And they've always been attacking man. But they also go, the man fights back and then the gargoyles go into a dormant stage. But, of course, the movie picks up where they're coming out of that dormant stage, which leads to what happens in the movie. It's a good time. I mean, it is a solid film. You know, it's a TV movie. But, you know, when I say that, it doesn't mean they held back on the scares. People die in this movie. There is blood in this movie. Somebody gets set on fire in this movie. And it's not just like a little fire burn scene you know, out in the distance. Somebody gets knocked in the head, laid out cold. Fire falls on top of him. He burns up. It is pretty intense. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's just awesome. That's just awesome. Scott Glenn's in the cast. I mean, a young Scott Glenn. You've got Jennifer Salt in the movie. You've got Bernie Casey in this thing. Bernie Casey. And he's the main monster. <laughs> How awesome is that? It is just great. And then for those of us that are Dark Shadows fans, Grayson Hall is in the movie. I mean, playing mm -hmm. playing the motel owner. It's just so you just watching it, you're just like, oh, I know that person. I know that person. You know, you didn't recognize Bernie because you saw his name in the credit because of the makeup. Right. And it's not even his voice. Vic Perrin came in and did the voice for Bernie Casey, who I believe also did the opening narration in the film. He might have. I'm I not could be sure. wrong, but... Yeah, I know Vic Perrin did a lot of voiceover work and narration work, and I believe he was also the person who did the opening narration, but he's the main voice of the Gargoyle. The producers felt that Bernie Casey's voice just didn't quite fit. I didn't get the impression that it was voiceover work, and I don't know if that's a testament to Bernie Casey's acting, Vic Perrin's voice acting, or the sound editor, but if I didn't know beforehand that it was voiced over by somebody else, thanks to Sven Gulli kind of telling me uh, in his wraparound bits, I, I wouldn't have known. Yeah, well, Bill Norton, the director, said in the commentary track that he felt terrible that they had to um, dub Bernie Case's voice. He's saying all the dialogue and everything, but it just didn't sound the way they wanted it to sound. Mm -hmm. and, that, and that's why they dubbed him out. He, he said he felt bad about doing it. You know, I think it works, though. And for the film, I, I know what Bernie Casey sounds like. I've heard him in genre stuff before, in fact, with Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde, which is such a fun movie. Um, but 
I, I think it works in this. Uh, you mentioned the director, Bill Norton. This is very early in his career as a director, but you wouldn't have known it by watching this movie. I mean, he handles what could have been a movie that spiraled out of his control with a really solid grip. I think it was only a second film, right? I think so. And he wasn't even the first choice as director. The first director, I can't remember the name, but once he found out the budget and he had 18 days to film it, he said, nobody can do this movie for that little in 18 days. They asked Bill Norton, and he said, we can do it. 18 days. And they're in New Mexico in 100-degree-plus weather. And those guys in those, those gargoyle costumes were sweating all over the place. I imagine uh, they, they're very well designed. I like the look of them. I'd love to have an action figure or two of them, but they don't look like they breathe very well. So I imagine people were struggling. And also to, from under the commentary, the cave system was something they found there. They were able to film that on they found this one cave and they were able to use like different parts of this cave network to do the scenes with the gargoyle caves. So that's why that set looks mm-hmm. so great because it's real. No, it looks fantastic. It looks phenomenal. Uh, the director, uh, I have seen some of his other works. Uh, he, <laughs> Baby, Secret of a Lost Legend, which I'm very familiar with. I saw that when it first came out in the theater. And then he also did the sequel to American Graffiti, more American Graffiti, which I've also seen and actually really enjoy. Uh, it's very interesting in how they put that one together. He's gone on to have a career working until early 2000s. So he's gone on to done quite a bit. A lot of television. And he knew what he was doing. I'm glad he did it because I think it does have a very strong narrative voice. The film itself is a strong story. I think it works well. And one other thing I want to say is Bernie Casey, when you brought up a couple of his movies, he's in one of my all-time favorite movies, comedy-wise. Oh, yeah. I'm going to get you, sucker. From 1988. <laughs> I just love that movie. And here's where we shout out to our good friend Scott Morris because he was also in a James Bond film, Never Say Never Again. Scott being a big James Bond fan, got to recognize that. But he has a very distinct voice as well, and he had done some voiceover work in, in animation and things like that. But I just don't think his voice would have fit for the gargoyle. I don't think so either. Also, you got to remember when I saw this recently, it was the first time when I saw it um, a couple weeks ago, it was the first time I'd seen the film in, since I was like five or six years old. So we're talking like 44 years in between viewings. I remember you asked me, like, what was the last monster movie you saw in one of the last time we did a podcast, um, the March of the Wind Soldiers, when I said, oh, Gargoyles, because I just watched it that day. Oh, that's right, yeah. Because when you go back to a movie that you have fond memories of when you're that young, you always worry, like, is it going to go good or go bad? And it went good. So it was just like, oh, this is excellent. And there are some things that happened differently than I remembered in my young mind. I fell asleep during parts and maybe dreamed part of the storyline as it was going along. I don't know. In my mind, there was even more blood than there was in the screen. Well, I think that happens, you know, when when you watch something, especially when you're younger, you kind of inflate it a little bit. Like, I knew somebody growing up who swore he saw Darth Vader headshot full on without his mask on in Empire Strikes Back when he saw it when he was a kid. Now, that never happened. I mean, you see it with the helmet off, but you never see his face. But this kid swore he saw it and described it in great detail. But he just his brain just kind of started filling in the blanks. And I think that, again, though, goes part of it's the nostalgia, part of it's being a kid and seeing the movie when you're younger. But I think part of it also is the film itself 
encouraging you to imagine things that may not be there. You know, it's a very skillful way of telling your story to let the audience kind of fill in some blanks for you and make it even better. It makes you kind of a participant in the whole thing. And that's the one negative I have of some of the current movies that are out is that if they feel mm-hmm. you have to tell you every single detail because you are not smart enough. And I'm just like, come on. The audience is smart. The audience will get it if you give them a chance. I mean, the, the best movies usually don't spell it all out for you. They leave it up there. I'm, part of me loves movies that have a, an ambiguous ending, and part of me does not like movies with ambiguous mm-hmm. endings. It just depends how the movie was going, how it sets it up. Like, I mean, we always like our nice, happy endings, but I mean, sometimes um, things don't always end so happy. This one does have a, a pretty happy ending, kind of. I mean, not all the humans die. Nor do all the gargoyles. <laughs> And that's the other thing. I mean, not that I want to sit around and not that there's any way I'd be around, you know, <laughs> to watch what happens 500 years from the time this movie was made for the gargoyles to come back and try again. But, you know, I thought that was a very interesting kind of take on how to end this movie. You don't have to kill everything. You don't have to wipe everything out. A couple of gargoyles get away. And, and the way the whole thing kind of comes to an end and, and how the humans win kind of sort of out of their control if not for the one gargoyle kind of saying hey um why don't you come over here your diana's this way you know they might not have pulled it off and i thought that was great too yeah i liked it because the one gargoyle was plus of um jennifer salt's character because the, the lead gargoyle played by bernie casey was infatuated with her so she led the father played by cornell wilde to uh, get to her and which led to um, their downfall. These creatures that hate humanity and want to kind of take over the world and do with it what they think is best. This head gargoyle has a very human quality uh, where he does have this kind of infatuation with Diana, with this woman. And yeah, like you said, it leads to their downfall. It's, it's his sin, you know, is what brings him down. And it's great. I mean, just, just the way the storytelling, because there's a very biblical kind of feel at the very beginning of the movie, and you start bringing this into the, to the end. It's a nice little wraparound. It's nice. Oh, I, re- I really enjoyed it. The, as you talked about the special effects, I even like the special effects of the cave with the eggs in it, the gargoyle eggs. Yes. And, yes. And was, so cool looking, right? Yeah, and I'm sure it probably didn't cost much of anything to do, but the people that did the sets did such an excellent job so when you got in there you you believed that was a breeding ground area and it just worked so well mm-hmm. yeah no i thought the the eggs looked great you know i feel like there's a tendency to kind of go toward like the alien route when you start thinking like you know a- eggs from some sort of monster kind of thing but th- these looked unique and and different and low budget i mean it doesn't matter they worked i thought the whole sequence looked really neat really cool it, it, i don't know it's just it's interesting to watch the only problem I ever had with the movie, watching it again recently, when Grayson Hall's character is going with the gas station guy to go get help because the phone lines are taken down. So they're going to go get the um, state police. And everybody's together. They're all talking. Everybody's looking in the pickup truck that they're in. They drive away. Shortly after they get away, you see a gargoyle hand pop up. Now, how could the sheriff, the deputy... The professor, everybody missed the gargoyle in the open pickup truck. <laughs> well, <laughs> so that, was, that was the only thing I was just like scratching my head. Like, cause I, I watched it again just to make sure, like, did I hear any flapping? Because, you know, because it was one of the flying gargoyles and you usually hear a flapping sound. If they would have just put in a mm-hmm. little flapping prior to that, 
then I would have been like okay with it because that would have told us that the gargoyle flew in, which they which they signaled all the other times in the movies when the gargoyle was flying. Yeah, you know, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that one. Well, I, it's, <laughs> I have no other problem with anything else in the movie. It's just the one, just that one part, and um, what ends up happening to her character, how they show it. That was for 1972 TV. That was like whoa. Yeah, right. When that reveal comes up, I mean, it is very surprising. We don't associate that with TV from the early 70s. There is something that happens in this movie that is very 70s TV-ish, and that's the music. And it wouldn't be an episode of Monster Kid Radio if I didn't talk about the music. Robert Prince is the composer of the score. I loved it. It feels very 70s monster movie-ish. I dug it a lot. I really wish a lot of this music was available to purchase as a standalone because I would put this on my iPod and listen to repeatedly. Robert Prince was somebody who did a lot of work on Broadway, of all things. But he also did some television and film work, Gargoyles. Uh, he did J.D.'s Revenge, which is kind of like a black exploitation horror-type film, and a few other things uh, along the way. But Man, I, I really dug this a lot. The music was mm. excellent. The acting was well done. I mean, it was just really, it was just a nice, tight, small cast movie, which again, you and I've talked about before. I think some of the problems with these newer movies is that, that don't do as well is they're trying to make everything global, huge. But then you look at the shape of water and you look at some other ones that do extremely well, get out. They're not huge. They're more intimate. And I think that's what they're missing. This mm -hmm. movie has it. Creature of the Black Lagoon has it. Sometimes you need those intimate movies. And this one does have it, but the threat is global in a way because if they fail here, if our human characters, if, if everybody here doesn't pull this off and, and stop the gargoyles, we know that they're going to go on and take over the world. But... Dr. Bowley and his daughter and that guy on a dirt bike and a few others, they managed to stop what will eventually become a worldwide threat. Yet it's still a small story in, in terms of the number of people involved, where it's at. It's in a small little town out in the middle of the desert somewhere. Awesome aesthetic. It just works on, on pretty much every level. I think that's what a lot of movies are missing but like I said, a name coupled there just they were last year, big hits, and shows it still works. It's not like you have to reinvent the wheel here. You just got to put out a good story, put a good setting, good acting and directing, and you'll have things going. You don't always need tons and tons of special effects to make a movie. If your movie's all special effects, it's all spectacle, and there's no no reason to enjoy it after what, you know, it's like fireworks without the music. It's all sizzle, no steak. Exactly. Says the vegetarian. I'm going to ask you this question. When I was listening to the commentary tag, the commentary tag, oh, good Lord. The commentary. When Bill Norton was talking about the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like yes. Porky Pig. <laughs> when Bill Norton was talking about the movie, Cornell Wilde plays the father to Jennifer Salt. He said, in hindsight, he should have made them husband and wife because they're so close in age. I looked up their ages. How old do you think the yeah. two of these these two were in 1972? Well, um, I would have put Cornell White or Wild probably 50s, 60s. Yeah, he was he, he was 60 years old. 
Okay, but Jennifer Salt, I don't know. 28. Really? Yeah, really. Uh, obviously, perfect age for father-daughter. <laughs> yeah, that you see, and, and that I don't think I'd like it as much if they were a couple. And I get it. This is something that happens on Hollywood even more now, I feel like. But you do see it creeping all the way back to the 70s, even earlier than this, where you've got the older man and the much younger wife. And, and I get it. This is something that Hollywood does. But I do appreciate that they were not a couple in this. Father and daughter, perfect. The ages work. The relationship works. The way he cares about her works. The way she cares about him works. Making them a couple, kind of tweaking the dialogue a little bit, I don't think would have worked as well. Would have been kind of creepy and uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. I would have felt the same way. And and also goes to show you don't always need sex to sell a movie. No, you can have a non-romantic relationship between the opposite sex. I don't understand why Hollywood doesn't get it. I mean, I I, I don't know. Whatever. They didn't ask me. Well, they're not asking either one of us, but I mean, the way they do ask us is by buying a ticket for that for certain movies. And if there's movies that I just don't like, I don't buy the ticket to. That's, you know, that's true. And that's how, that's that's true. how they ask us is by if the movie makes nothing, then we're not going to see that movie again. So if you see movies out there that fit the criteria what you'd like in a movie, take your chance and go see it. If you're seeing the trailer or you hear from yeah. people and you're like, ah, I'm not sure if that's my kind of movie, then, um, then, then don't go put, then don't put your money up. Don't make Hollywood think you like it because that's all they go by is how much you're, how much money they're making. Everybody says they hate seeing remakes, but then they go and buy the tickets for the remakes. You're voting with your dollar. Anyway, that's a whole different conversation. <laughs> so we're recording this uh, just a few days removed from me attending the Lovecraft film festival here in Portland. And, and I don't think by now y'all would have heard y'all really i don't know by now if uh i've put on the show the recording that i did at the festival but watching this movie i'm in that lovecraft frame of mind and for those of you who know lovecraft and know that kind of lovecraftian thing i couldn't help but feel like there's a little bit of that here especially at the beginning when the anthropologist is talking to the crazy old guy who's got this story to tell about this thing he found in the caves and they're relaying the story and it's being recorded on tape to play back later it feels like it could be the start of something lovecraftian and i respond incredibly well to that now the biblical thing that's not lovecraft at all and, and i totally get that later on as the movie progresses it gets further and further away from lovecraft but i still love that setup for a story i respond to it so well it's like they were talking to me they made this movie for me man the actor who played the old coot was Uncle Willie. Uncle Willie <laughs> was just awesome. He's in there for that first big scene that sets everything up. It's just an amazing job. I was just like, wow, this guy's really doing mm -hmm. it. You know, I mean, you felt he was just a little unhinged in a good way, I think. I sure. hope, you know, that kind of stuff. The setting that they did for his exhibits, because he had Uncle Willie's unique exhibits or whatever it was called. Was was really cool. I mean, you could just tell they must have loved it. It's like, oh, let's put some skeletons here. Let's get this there. Let's put this poster up. I mean, it really sold it well as him being a yeah. kind of a sideshow con man, but he's not. 
or is he? And that's something else that I respond to as well. I, I really enjoy the idea of these little sideshow attractions, you know, pull off on the next exit to see the mystery spot, you know, that sort of thing. I love that setup. One of my favorite novels of all time is a book called The Attraction, uh, and it's by Douglas Clegg, who is somebody that I really enjoy as well. And it's about this little sideshow attraction thing off on the side on the road that this group of characters go to and it's a horror novel so you know what things don't go really well but (laughs) i just i love that setup that there could be this thing of great importance good or bad just kind of shoved away in the corner is some crazy guy's barn off on the side of the road trying to make a buck charging people 75 cents to come in to see the big mystery or the big whatever and there's this thing here that really has much more importance than just 75 cents, you know, and, and I like that setup as well. And I liked the gargoyle skeleton. Oh, it looked great. If you, if you gave me a question, like what kind of prop would you want? It's almost like, man, that would really look cool in my man cave. Though my wife would kick it, kick it out of the house as soon as she saw it. It'd be one of those things. It'd, it'd be there as long as I, until she saw it. <laughs> Until she got home from work that day. And then, yeah. Um, for me, I'd put it in the passenger seat of my car and take the, the carpool-only lane on the highway. I mean, it'd be perfect. <laughs> yeah, a police officer wouldn't pull you over. and would be like, what the hell? I don't want to get near that guy. You know, it's Portland. I think they probably have seen a lot worse. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think the skeleton looked great as well. I mean, it's just... I loved this movie, man. I am so glad that you were pushing for this one. And I know sometimes I drag my heels when somebody brings up something from like the 70s or the 80s, that sort of thing. I just like, uh, you know, it's not really in the classic era, but I'm really glad you pushed for this one. And I just had a blast watching it. I wish I could get it on DVD, but I just checked it on Amazon. It's going for 50 bucks. I don't think I can pick that up right now. Um, I did a search for it a couple months ago. On for DVD, I saw yeah, Amazon had a huge. There was somebody on eBay had it for twenty dollars. Usually, when you see something like that happen on Amazon, it's because it's going to go out of print or it's already out of print and they're just selling off their stock. I don't understand the mindset, but that's typically what happens when when a movie that by all rights should be fifteen, twenty, twenty five dollars jacks up like that in price. That's typically what it means. So if you can find it cheap, I'd highly recommend it because chances are it's going to go out of print soon. And it also comes with the director's commentary, which is very insightful. He he talks about what he liked about the costumes, what he did not like. He kind of matched up with my same opinion of it. Um, he, he said he wished he could have done the flying scene better at um, with the gargoyle at the end. Um, he hit things um, dead on, you know, about his opinions he did not like what he said some people don't notice the bad he gave you warts and all he he, he left nothing out there mm-hmm. um it was, it was it was a really good commentary track not, not some commentary tracks as you well know can end up being nothing but them just like a director and somebody else just talking about their kids for a whole hour and a half and you got nothing from it when you watch the commentary track for john carpenter's the thing for example you can tell that carpenter and kurt russell are having a great time reminiscing about the movie and talking about the things that happened on the movie yet there's another movie that they did the commentary track on and they spend a big chunk of it talking about their kids little league games (laughs) that's not what we're that's not what we signed up for so i hear you I hear you. It's just one of the people to know that it it is a good commentary track. I'd love to have this in my collection. So listeners, if you have an extra copy, hook a brother up, man. (laughs) (laughs) 
it was pretty phenomenal. I had a blast watching this. You mentioned the flying scene. I suppose if I had to fault the movie for anything, I did not need that last shot of the gargoyle flying. I understand what might have gone into the idea of shooting that, you know, let's let's have this kind of epic shot of them flying away, you know, make it this big grandiose thing. What I really liked was the shadow of them flying away against the side of the mountain or the cave. That was cool. And I thought if they ended with that image, that would have been a more solid punch at the end for me. Just because I think them flying away didn't look fantastic. I mean, it looked okay, but I think it would have been stronger to just end with a shadow. Well, like I said, the director agrees with you. He's a smart man. Yeah. I'm just saying, you know, it's like he, he didn't really care for how to fly and see. He said if he had CGI, it would have been, you know, he'd have been able to pull it off a lot better. Oh, but sure, I think, I think sure. the shadow part would have just been that. And you could just left it flap. You could have just went to the credits and you could have heard the wings flapping and went right into the music. Even better, even better. And this movie could have had a sequel because who knows what those two gargles could have done, you know? Well, they're going to go dormant for 500 years. So what, this came out in 1972. So what's 500 years from that? Who cares about continuity? That's true. I, I love the movie. Uh, highly recommended. Uh, I would put it right up there with some of the best genre cinema that I've seen lately. Just solid movie all in all. I'm glad you enjoyed it. And like I said, it it's a 1972 movie, but it easily has that 60s vibe. You know, sure. which which is in your wheelhouse. And we were just talking, it's just a few, a couple of mm-hmm. years out of your, like what, four years out of where you normally cut off that. So it's not like it's really that far away. So anything, I can't think of anything else to say about the movie other than we really liked it. I know I've said the word neat and cool a lot, uh, <laughs> but the movie is neat and cool. So all I can say is I recommend people, you know, um, look it up if, and see if you can find it and then watch it and enjoy it. I mean, and uh, who knows? Maybe one day they'll come out for Blu-ray. I mean, I hear they're coming out for Blu-ray for a certain movie about a caveman. <laughs> what, what was that called? A movie called again? Ega, Egar. Yeah, yeah. If they could come out for Blu-ray of that, they could come out for Blu-ray of Gargoyles. And maybe that's why the DVD is going to be going out of print. You know, maybe that's what they're doing. But either way, if you have a chance to see it, Sven Gulli has hosted it, which means that eventually it'll get re-shown because he does recycle episodes, which is fine. Uh, it, it may show up again if you have MeTV. Keep an eye on the listings for that. So it may turn up that way, which is a fun way to watch. You know, I, I think watching it with a horror host is a lot of fun too. I will say though, because this is a TV movie, it comes built in with commercial breaks. You can always tell when a TV movie is about to go to commercial because you know, it fades to black, right? The thing is, <laughs> when this movie was originally broadcast in 1972, the commercial break times were different than they are now. So there are several times watching the movie on Sven where it goes to that fade out and then fades back in. And you know in your head, well, that's where the commercial should go. But it doesn't. Until later on in the middle of a scene where there would not be a commercial break where Steven Gooley cuts in and it's like, okay, and then we go to the commercial, which is a little awkward. But once you get past that, that, that would be weird when you're watching it. Did you have your rubber chicken with you? <laughs> no, I don't have a rubber chicken. Although I did see somebody wearing a Sven t-shirt at the Lovecraft Film Festival. That was awesome. 
I did make it a point to tell her that I loved her t-shirt. I meant to try to follow up with her later and chat with her some more, but it was on Friday and Friday was kind of a rough day. So unfortunately I didn't follow up, but it was just cool to see Sven representing. That's cool. That's cool. All right. Well, that's Gargoyles 1972. Check it out. Highly recommended monster kid radio seal of approval. Solid stuff. And I guess this movie can maybe serve as the bridge to bring you and I back together, Steve. I'm glad you're, I'm glad we were able to bridge that gap, Derek, without having to go to extensive therapy sessions. I guess we don't have to break up after all. (laughs) (laughs) Huge thanks to Steve Derek for everything that he does for us here on the show. Since he recorded that and now he's really made a go at it with his podcast, the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. Go check it out. He does that show with his daughter and son, Michaela and Ben, and then guests come in on the show occasionally as well. In fact, he just released an episode in which there is an interview with friend of the show, House of the Gorgon composer, Reber Clark. Also, Steve and I continued our conversation about Godzilla and Gilman after we were done talking about gargoyles. And I'd like to play that for you here now. I'm just saying, Steve, that really in the long term, in the grand scheme of things, Creature from the Black Lagoon, it really is a more important film than Godzilla. Oh, it makes sense. And and, and I agree with you, of course. I thought you would agree with me. And I think, really, you did tweak the results a little bit of the rallies that year. And I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if you keep doing it to make sure that Kaiju always come on top of my rubber suited aquatic man sized animals. I mean, that's not really fair for you to do, is it? I agree with you, of course. Yeah, that's what I thought. You're fired. Don't look. Shield your eyes. (laughs) For on the day you look upon them, you will surely die. House of the Gorgon. Why don't you let us alone? Get back on your train. And leave us alone! Rumors circling around. uh, Mysterious happenings at night. uh, Strange noises emanating from the dark. Leave Karlstadt. Leave now and never come back. Stay away from them. They mean you great harm. Caroline Monroe as the Baroness. What was the sinister secret she hid beneath her dark spectacles? Martine Beswick as her sister Uriel, malevolent and evil. You would sacrifice all that we've done merely to quench your innate desire for violence. Oh, what if I did? Veronica Carlson as Anna. The one woman in the village of Karlstadt willing to stand against these angels of death. I can fight you. We can fight you. Christopher Neem as Llewellyn, a man of faith locked in mortal combat with overwhelming evil. If we leave them alone, maybe they'll leave us alone. Also starring Joshua Kennedy as the mysterious Dr. Pritchard. And introducing Georgina Dugdale, Gooey Film's latest star discovery, the Gorgon's most beautiful victim. See all of this and more when you visit the House of the Gorgon. Cast you out every unclean spirit, every satanic power, 
the freezing paralysis of fear, almost stopping your heart, as Edgar Allan Poe unfolds his tales of terror. You will meet the master of the mansion, who loved and protected his wife with the strength of a supernatural love, even beyond life itself. I am in command here. You will do as I say. I shall take what I desire. Your body and your soul, if I demand it. Then you'll enjoy the Black Cat's sardonically humorous tale. It all started at the Vintners' convention, where the lover of wine met the professional wine taster and introduced him to his wife, a darling who delighted in dalliance. What kind of a man are you anyway? Make love to my wife and doesn't even talk to me. You're insane. That may be, but very clever. Help! 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 In this monstrous mausoleum of the living, you will witness fury far worse than a woman scorned. The fury of a dead woman's jealousy. In 1972, American TV networks canceled 12 TV shows for crimes they didn't commit. These shows were promptly forgotten by the public and faded into obscurity. Today, Chris Cooling researches these shows for a podcast. If there's a TV show that no one else remembers, and if you have earbuds, maybe you can listen to Forgotten TV. bring us to the end of the show i want to tell you about what's coming up this weekend we are continuing the social distance saturday streaming screening screaming event if i can actually cop a phrase from a friend of the show paul mccomas who you'll hear on the show in june it's a streaming it's a screening with a little bit of screaming it's social distance saturday and social distance saturday is a way for us to get together with our fellow monster kids virtually and watch monster movies all bloody day i start the pre-show around 11 o'clock a.m pacific time and then the actual movies themselves begin at noon pacific time and i typically go to at least 9 p.m and yeah it's pacific time too there is a huge chunk of movies and television shows that I show during this time, and they're all Monster Kid radio-friendly. They are movies from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, some TV series, some anthology stuff. It's usually horror, but every once in a while, I'll sneak in a science fiction film as well, and it's all free. Head over to twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio, and that's where you're going to be able to watch these films. Now, if you are a user of Twitch and have an account there, you can actually subscribe to the Monster Kid Radio stream 
I believe that's only $4.99 a month, and that helps support the Monster Kid Radio presence there. I'm having a blast with Social Distance Saturday, and I think it's something we're going to be continuing for a long, long time. Now, this is not exclusive to Monster Kid Radio listeners, so if you have friends out there that might be interested in watching these kinds of movies, invite them over. The best part about Twitch is that there is a chat going on the entire time. So you're getting to hang out with your friends and fellow monster kids around the world watching these classic, or sometimes not so classic, genre films of yesteryear. I hope to see you, or at least see your avatar or your chat or whatever, this Saturday at the Horror of Social Distance Saturday. And, oh yeah, stay tuned to monsterkidradio.net because here in a day or two I'll be announcing the schedule for this weekend's event. And finally, the only other announcement I'd like to make is that we get a lot of our music here on the show, a lot of the bands that we support, and even a few of the composers that we love, like Reaver Clark that we mentioned earlier, host their music on Bandcamp and make it available for sale there. Now, as you can imagine, Bandcamp takes a cut. And that's just how business is. I mean, I get it. It makes sense. However, May 1st, they are waiving all of their commission fees, which means if you go to Bandcamp on May 1st and buy all the digital albums that you want, you are supporting the artists during this time directly. That applies to Reber. That applies to this week's band. That applies to anybody that you're going to find on Bandcamp. So as much as I always encourage you to hop on over to Bandcamp and check out the music that I play on the show, hop on over to Bandcamp on May 1st and actually buy it. And you're supporting all of the wonderful artists that have supported Monster Kid Radio over the years. Of course, you'll find a link to this week's band and everything else that we've talked about here on the show in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net. This is where you're going to find links to everything that we've got going on here in Monster Kid Radio land. There's our feedback information, announcements about what's coming up next week, which is still a little nebulous, but I'll get to that here in a second. And a link to our Patreon page. I'm very excited to announce that finally we have updated our Patreon campaign. I want to thank everybody who has jumped on board or increased their pledges. It means a lot to know that you guys and gals have my back and are supporting me. Head over there to check out the video to explain a little bit about what's going on with the Patreon and check out some of the new rewards that I've listed there as well. I've kind of revised a few things, got a couple of new things in place and I'm just looking forward to keeping Monster Kid Radio growing, and I can do that with your support. I know I mentioned Patreon, and I talked about the subscription over at Twitch, but don't worry. Every episode of Monster Kid Radio, it's going to be here for you free every single week. Speaking of every week, next week is the first week of our annual Luchador event. It is Lucha de Mayo. And I think I just said it right for once. Okay, Lucha de Mayo. It is the month where we look at luchador, monster, or genre films. And I can tell you, I've got one recording in the can already. I'll be sending a message out to some of my lucha regulars here later tonight. And we'll schedule some more recordings. And, well, if things go the way that I want, we're going to have a nice mix of movies coming up in May. Stay tuned to Monster Kid Radio for more information. Now, between now and then, remember... Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All the original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Behind You. That is copyright 2020, and it belongs to the band Us Pampa Hayoles. And I apologize, I've probably been mispronouncing it this whole time. But check him out over at Us Pampa Hayoles and check out their self-titled album over on Bandcamp. And just so you know, that is spelled O-S-P-A-M-P-A-H-A-O-L-E-S. 
L-E-S.bandcamp.com. Check them out. Let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name's Derek Kim Cook, and I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao. <laughs>